Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. And my name is David Angel, and uh, today I'm sitting down with Tasman Murray, founder and managing partner of Holistic Analytics, um, focused on the use of advanced modeling techniques to build a customer centric analytics culture across organizations. Got that from your website. Yep, that's good. Um, to deliver next generation business performance. So, welcome, Tasman, and thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having us, David. So um, let's start with with that premise of your business that I was just talking about, to build a customer-centric analytics culture across organizations. I like the use of the word culture. Could you unpack that for me a bit? You know, how would you define a well-established analytics culture? And what can the work that you do and, and with analytical modeling in general really achieve? You know, whether that be media or marketing mix or whether it be CX or attribution or or anything else. You know, when it's performed well, what can it really deliver? Sure. A um, few things to unpack there. Um, I think when we talk about creating a customer-centric analytics culture, what we find most of the time in a company is analytics is buried at the bottom. So within each vertical, you'll have people doing analytics, but they're solving this tiny problem. What most companies don't realize is that tiny problem exists across every single vertical they have. So if you can elevate analytics up to the top of the business, you can solve that one problem once rather than solving that one problem 20 times. Mm-hmm. And using that information, you can then realize how much the business is suffering from the same challenges. And that way you get to you get everyone in the business to talk about how a customer sale actually impacts across the business or how every part of the business impacts a customer sale. So it's no longer just sales and marketing sell this product. It's logistics that help sell this product. It's your branding that helps sell this product. It's all these different bits and pieces and how they all come together. And obviously every business should be customer centric. Yes. Of so course. Through analytics, we're hoping hoping to help companies understand exactly how customer centric each part of that business is. And I can see the link to the word culture there. I mean, you've you you've described that almost as a um, a systemic cultural thing within a business, rather than a tech thing or a, or a data thing. You know, they're just people are just working in different directions. Yeah, and we always, as a business, we always try to remove analytics from tech and data. Um, so many places have analytics under a CTO or a CDAO. Um, Data is, if you're building a house, data is the bricks. Yeah. And you can get all the bricks you want, but if you've got no plan of what to do with it, there's no point. How have you approached that with, with your clients that you work with? I mean, it must be quite challenging for them to work in in what what would be a different way from usual. Yeah. Uh, one of the It's one of the biggest challenges, really. Uh, the way we generally approach it is we'll do an audit with the company. So we'll talk with people across the different verticals within their business, understand the kind of problems they have, the challenges they're having, and... In so doing that, you're starting to flesh out these global overall problems. A lot of the time, it's they can't access the information they they need. They don't realize that information exists. It's incorrect across multiple different platforms, but also they don't understand how what they're doing is influencing what someone in another team's doing. Hmm. They're just running their vertical entirely separately, and so there's all this wasted money. There's all this wasted opportunity. So if you've run that kind of audit out, you built out a bit of a roadmap for them. You can easily put dollars on things. Hmm. You know, solving this problem will help you as a business save 15, uh, 15 million. Solving this will do this. So you, you touched on uh, uh, wasted money and inefficiency. And, and I'm also keen to, to th- consider the flip side. You know, I, I've worked with 
analytical modeling. I haven't built it, but I've worked with it on, yep. on certainly on the agency side for quite a while, for 20 odd years, really, um, in different iterations. I know that the work that you do requires really highly defined skill sets. Um, and I've come across this challenge, and I'm sure there's many listeners out there who, who have experienced a varying degree of quality when they've actually used um, models of this nature. You know, what what level of damage would you say can be caused by a badly worked model? You know, what are the com- common roadblocks you come across when you, you walk into um, a situation where there's a sort of patchwork quilt of models of or data or tech or solutions or whatever it might be? Um, you see this a lot more, I think, with data and tech. Uh, obviously, the analytic solutions can be an issue, but if you think of data lakes, um, data warehouses, now it's obviously cloud data storage solutions, whatever the case may be, whatever you want to call it. I like the data sewers can know it at the moment, and that's a nice one. <laughs> yes. But, nice uh, and germane. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think the ship is now free, but anyway, yes. Yeah, nice. still works. After it's just about, yeah. <laughs> um, but the issue there is you're spending... 40 million, 50 million, 60 million on rolling out a data warehouse, uh, this data solution that does nothing. Yeah. So you've got all the data in one place, but you've got no idea. So you've got all the bricks in one place, but you've got no idea what you're trying to build with it. And so it doesn't get used. Mm. So this company has spent $60 million in consulting fees and whatever else the case may be, and hours and hours and hours, years of time for people, and they've gotten nowhere. So then this company gets a bad taste in their mouth. Oh, data doesn't work because they've just ruined all the opportunity they have here. I think if you're running an analytics model, and I do hate people using gut feel, nothing irritates me more than people just operating on gut feel. But whenever we work with a client, we make sure we build the models with them. We don't give them a black box. We don't do anything like that. If you're given a black box, a lot of people, it won't pass the sniff test. Hmm. So most of the time, the analytics models will be limited in the damage they can do because people don't trust it 100%. Yes. Obviously, in the share market, there have been examples of people using black box solutions to completely crash a business. Uh, which is one of the major risks I guess you could have with it. Um, but as long as you're staying away from high volume trading, the risks are minimal. So you touched on two really interesting things there. Um, firstly, the the organizations that have been burnt, I've come across that a lot, burnt by something, being, yeah. by being told a, a bright, shiny thing. Um, in your experience, is that delivered by, is that is that sort of, does that problem come about because of the C-suite putting pressure on teams to deliver what they consider to be a shiny thing? Or does it come from various different points within the organization? Where does that? Where do those bad decisions happen? I think a lot of the time it is coming from the C-suite, which is they've been sold an idea. Uh, they've So many times we've talked to people who have gone to a conference, like, oh, they're doing this, we need to be doing this. And often it's coming from a large consultancy telling them that they should be doing that, wherever they're getting the idea from. Um, but it's being sold in a vertical and it's not being sold across the business. It's not being rolled out across the business. And I think that's where the major issue is with these kind of things. A lot of the time I'll be resume padding for somebody, but somebody saying, we need to roll this out. Um, we've got all these old systems we need to replace. This can do it in reality. It can't do it in reality. The way the rollout's been done ensures it can't be done. Um, there are bad actors in the market that deliberately ruin a rollout mm-hmm. and then hope they can get brought back in to help fix whatever problem they caused. Um, so I think it's a combination of a narrowly defined set of requirements and then a combination of bad actors kind of bringing it together. Yeah, interesting. And the other thing you touched on was trust. Um, trust of individuals in the model itself. I mean, even we're getting away now from whether the model is, a, is well put together or whether it's a black, yeah. a, a black box. But um, in my experience, certainly I've come across marketers who are literally just scared 
that their budgets are going to be taken away from them by whatever the, mo- the model tells yep. them. They have an in, in, in sort of an inbuilt layer of cynicism um, about a model suggesting any kind of change or evolution. Yep. Um, what's been your experience of that and, and what sort of techniques do you use to try and get around those, those kind of well, challenges? It's not just those. There's also an ego problem. So, sure. so many, sure. especially yeah. in marketing, like yeah. so many times people will have made decisions based purely on yes. gut feel. Yes. And if the model is telling them that that was wrong, then they've, they're worried they've lost all cash that they have. Uh, they're no longer going to be the big bad hero. Uh, they've been shown to be wrong. So balancing those is absolutely a massive issue. Mm. Uh, the way we try to approach it is, again, we avoid, avoid any black box. Um, any modeling we do, we talk with stakeholders first before you put pen to paper, before you get any numbers. You talk with all the stakeholders and you understand what they've tried before, what they believe works, what they believe doesn't, and why. Mm. So you're bringing out all these assumptions to the fore and you're getting these conversations across the entire marketing team, how broad or how narrow that may be. And from there, you're starting to flesh out these assumptions so people within the teams are actually talking about those assumptions. A lot of the time, if the CMO has said this is what happens, then that's what happens. Mm. No one's questioned that. No one's gone after that. Mm. So once these assumptions are fleshed out, they start to not necessarily lose confidence in the way they've been doing things, but they start to see that there may be opportunities to do things better. So the way we try to do it is to get the client to actually lead it themselves. We try to educate the client in such a way that they're talking about it in the right language, but they're the ones running the conversation. So the ideal presentation for us is to have the deck there, have the model there, whatever the case may be, and the clients run it. They talk it through with their stakeholders, they talk it through with everywhere else. We're just there for any complicated questions. And it also that points to culture again. You've yep. got a culture of, I mean, a culture of fear is a strong term, but marketers or, or, or any kind of team with an organisation feeling threatened by what this kind of yeah. this kind of approach can do is obviously not uh, not the best cultural uh, fit. For, no, no. So, yeah. so you're you're developing it for you're you're creating opportunities for them to lead it themselves. Obviously, is going to be uh, beneficial. Yeah, you're trying to move from culture of instinct to a culture of information. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you gave me another segue. It's like we've rehearsed this. We, we, we absolutely haven't, but you did give me another segue uh, into my the next area I really wanted to talk about here. When you talked about egos, you talked about egos and you talked about people being threatened not just by budgets, but by um, uh, decisions that they've been made, you know, have been made historically or yep. for heritage reasons or for gut feel, whatever it might be, being proved to be wrong. Now, the other egos in the room are often agencies, yep. um, particularly media agencies. Yep. And uh, I, I can say that because I've been in a media, many media agencies and I know that, that you have too. And I yep. wanted to ask you a bit about um, your journey to holistic analytics and setting that up. You know, I'm particularly interested in your move from uh, the big agency that you were in or, or being part of a big agency to, to what is a completely sort of independent player. So be great for you to sort of uh, tell us your thought process a bit in making that move and and maybe elaborate a bit on the pros and cons of the modeling done in-house with the agency versus the independent uh, objective kind of player coming yeah. in and doing it outside. All right, obviously, I might have a slightly biased you're, you're opinion. Gonna have a, you're going to have a bias, but, you know, you've been an agency person, so, yeah. you, know, do, you know, be open. Yeah, um, I think the beginning of the end for me at an agency – was when I had, I don't know if it was the CEO at the time, but several several heads of or leaders in the business try and call me up to get me to change a model uh, because they didn't That's like the great. results because it showed that one of the channels that was clearly the most profitable for them wasn't actually working for the client. And I flat out refused. 
And that obviously led to some bad blood within the business because I wasn't playing ball. So I think a, the second you try to take away that independence from an agency, even if it's an internal agency, uh, there's massive issues within the business. Mm. Um, I think the egos, I found a couple of interesting things in agencies. And obviously I'm not using fraud from a legal perspective here, um, but I find there is often in large media agencies fraud intentionally or fraud mistakenly. So whether it's fraud through ignorance or fraud through intention, they're two separate things. Um, but we've received reports before from agencies, not the ones we were working with, but from other agencies, uh, where they're claiming that they've had perfect targeting for a digital advertising campaign, hitting women in Victoria between 18 and 45, and they got 20 million unique hits. It seemed like a bit of an issue. <laughs> yes, 20 million people being nearly the entire population of correct yeah. Australia. Yeah, yes. as opposed to just women in one state between a certain age. Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, see, I'd call that fraud by ignorance. I don't think they were intentionally doing that, um, but people that just don't understand the numbers or what they're presenting can commit fraud in so doing. They can say it's perfectly targeted and they've done 100% of their job correctly, where clearly the numbers prove that that's not correct. Mm. Um, intentional fraud, I find a lot more with large media holding groups around programmatic or anything where there's a large margin, um, they will try to overhype the results of that. Um, this can be through changing the metrics they're using. It can be through um, looking at what a successful return is. Um, you see this in IPOs all the time as well. I know when Uber and when a few other companies have gone to IPO, they've tried to change what their success metric is. So it's not being active users or active monthly users. It's been users purchasing something or it's been some other metric that's been increased. Mm. So this happens throughout a range of businesses, but trying to change these metrics to suit them. Um, but what it shows to me is their best interest, what they have at heart, what their interests are at heart is not the client. It's self-serving. So let's let's just play devil's advocate for a bit because um, you know I should point out and and you know my part of my question was let's look at this from the right. AT perspective as well despite the fact that of course you've you've, you've made a journey right yeah. and and I I am a big but I've written articles about it and you know done training about it and I'm a big believer within agencies of, of um, objective transparency and and the use of um, and um, yes of course there are sometimes pressures right the ones yeah. you described are quite extreme. Um, I've I've seen a variety both in agencies and uh, when working with Trinity B three, um, there is a level of disparity between networks and between certain industry players in terms of the way in which they approach this. Um, some are way more transparent um, and objective um, than others, um, and it's often interesting to see how an agency does respond to having an external modelling or analytics provider come in. Yeah, um, some will respond really well, others. Not so much. Yeah. Um, so, but but from the agency's point of view, um, you know, if I play devil's advocate, I, you could make an argument that agencies have been pushed into this position by an ever diminishing, um, uh, be, by being forced to play to the to the lowest common denominator, yeah. an ever ever diminishing return, ever diminishing um, profit margin, um, driven by clients who are either wanting lower fees or wanting cheap media. And that's it, yeah. you know, forget about the quality. Um, and agencies get driven into that position and therefore have to make revenue and have to make profit yep. somewhere. Having said that, so my question to you, I guess, having said all of that is, 
is it naive to say, well, if 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 the the playing field was levelled for agencies to be able to make a more transparent um, return on their own investment into a client's business and be paid properly, yeah, would that solve some of these issues, or are we too far gone for that to happen? I think the biggest issue for agencies at the moment is proving value. Yeah. So a majority of agencies at the moment are obviously they try to do strategy and other bits and pieces, but they're still largely transactional. They struggle to prove the value that they can provide over any other media agency. And I think so long as that exists, so long as that remains a problem, agencies are going to continue this downward slide. So they need to try and find their profits elsewhere, whether it's through doing creative, doing other things, but all those things they're still struggling to prove the value of. It's interesting. Um, I think smart agencies think much more laterally about how they can add value. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'll give you a specific, without naming individuals, this is literally a project that I'm working on at the moment with Trinity P3, where the media agency, we, we've, we've been brought in to assess the capability and current performance um, and operational relationship between a media agency and a, and a, a, a large organisation in Australia. And the media agency uh, has had one of the most positive reviews I've ever come across. And you're, to your point, it's hard for media agencies to prove their worth. It's hard for them to be trusted. It's hard for them to deliver value over another another agency. Yeah. So this particular agency and this particular um, organisation, um, there is a, a really stellar relationship and, and stellar performance. And the reason I give you this example is that one of the things one of the things that we do is is we do a lot of discovery via stakeholder interviews. And one of the things that came up continuously across a group of I don't know ten different individuals, uh, they kept on telling me about the fact that um, uh, in the last couple of years they started doing market mix modelling and they yep. brought in an external player to do that. Yep. And the agency has been so collaborative and open and willing to work with. Um, this external partner, yeah, you know, giving giving uh, building models that, that will either confirm or deny what the agency has been doing, and will either work for or work against deals that the agency has in place. Yeah, and there was so much positive affirmation of the value the agency was offering purely because they took the right attitude. Yeah, but also they've proved value. That's yes, the whole point of marketing is modeling, exactly. proving the value of what they're doing. Um, and. But where even where they've had to make adjustments, they've made the adjustments. Yep. They've 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 worked with the client to trust them all, as opposed to, and I've seen this happen, and I'm sure you have too, dragging their feet, dragging their heels, wanting to do it themselves, not wanting to give information to an external provider. Yep. Um, it, you know, to the point where it just seems self defeating. Yeah, yeah, um, you're admitting you've got a problem, and you don't want to solve it at that point. Yeah, and that's um, it. Just it strikes me as. It's just contradictory that the, that the agencies won't think about it yeah. in quite those terms. But I guess the behaviour is so ingrained and possibly from the agency's point of view, the compensation model is so ingrained that they literally can't afford yeah. to do it. And, and that's where it becomes an industry problem. And I guess that sort of circles back to what we were I was originally talking about, which is like how, how much of this can be solved by agencies changing their attitude versus how much should be solved by um, organisations taking a different stance when it comes to paying their agencies and um, KPIing their agencies. Yeah, right. well, you could also push it further up the line. So are the publishers they're working with. Like, at the moment, they're getting deals based on the amount of stock they buy. Mm. What's the value of that stock? Oh, we're getting these demographics. Are you? How effective are those demographics? If we advertise those, are they going to be effective? Are they going to buy our products? Publisher doesn't talk about that. They talk about reach. 
So I think media agencies potentially have a chance to push this back up to publishers. Say, what is the value of your stock? Like, what is the value of what you're actually giving us and what we're buying? Why should we be paying more for you than another agency or another publisher? Yeah, and that uh, that kind of approach is fundamentally at odds with some of the some of the ways in which organisations want their agencies to behave, which Correct. is give me the multiple, you know, the highest multiple of impressions, yep. uh, clicks, inventory, whatever, which naturally leads to a drop off in the quality of and the, and therefore the value of that inventory yep. that's being purchased. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it becomes a, a conversation about value and outcomes as opposed to cost and volume and volume yeah. and outputs. So to me, there's a massive opportunity for analytics and modeling to help with that yeah. in tandem with a, a compliant agency and a sensible organization or client who can uh, work together to deliver value and not just volume. Yeah, yeah precisely. And as long as you're proving the value at every step of the way, you can you can prove that value for your client, give them something they've never had before, and you can build that out in more depth. So mm. if we think of like a media planning tool at the moment, all media planning tools are based around reach demographics, mm. reach demographics impressions. There's no dollars in there. What does a company care about? Sales. Mm. So why are we not talking about how many sales we're going to get by running these ads? So if you can create a media planning tool that actually has full value and shows the value of everything you're purchasing against demographics you want to purchase them from, That'll be a huge outcome. Mm, absolutely. Change the conversation you have across the entire industry. Now, naturally, publishers don't want this conversation to happen because they're a volume-based business. They want to sell as many ads as they can for as much as they can. Mm. Media agencies, volume-based business historically. But if you can push that back onto media agencies, push that back onto publishers, so publishers are then trying to create high-value content or high-value spots, sure, they can sell them for more. If you know the value of this, you can say, all right, we're going to get you this many sales. Here's the cost of this ad. Yeah. But it takes multiple players working together in harmony to uh, to, to drive that thing forward. But look, I think, I mean, we've, we've rested quite heavily there on some of the challenges, but there is massive opportunity. There's, there's no doubt about it. Give me a success story. Without naming, you don't, obviously don't, I'm not yeah. asking you to name names, but someone that you've worked with in holistic analytics recently who and who you've been able to demonstratively sort of move a dial with or move a needle with. Um, I think one of the major conversations we've been having recently is around long-term. Mm -hmm. um, majority of attribution, obviously digital attribution, huge thing in the last few years, focusing on the last couple of days at most. Uh, massive issues with that. Don't generally touch that. Uh, marketing modeling is generally looking at short terms, so probably two weeks to 12 weeks. Still really useful, but the long-term piece, like the top of the funnel, something most companies aren't looking at yet. A lot of companies don't realize you can. This idea of a full funnel attribution is very new to businesses. Uh, we're only really now kind of getting the metrics through that we'd need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but working with one company, um, they wanted to understand if they spent more on brand. So their marketing team was split between brand and retail or brand and digital really. And so there was always argument over budget. They wanted to understand, I was explaining to them that they have a long-term brand problem because they weren't spending enough on brand. It was all being pushed towards digital. So they wanted to understand how much they needed to spend on brand and what the outcome was likely to be. So we set out a two-year roadmap for them. And we said, okay, you need to spend this much on brand, which meant there was an extra $2 million investment required from the business, which would have been 8% of their total budget probably. So we're saying, okay, with this extra investment, in the first three months, these are the changes you're going to see. Um, your sales are going to increase by this much. Your brand preference is going to increase by this much. Your CPAs are going to decrease by this much. 
In the next six months, here's the changes on your sales, on your CPAs, on your brand preference. In the year, here's change going to be sales, CPA, brand preference. So each each benchmark, we gave them the range that they'd be within. And it was always increasing, always improving. Uh, in the first year they did that, they saw a 60% improvement in sales, which was fairly impressive being that I think they're always already the largest actor in the market in that mm. industry. After two years, it was 120% increase. Outrageous numbers. Fantastic. Yeah. And the kind of numbers we would never promise to any client. We were very surprised by it ourselves. Um, but the numbers backed it up, and it was just building out that brand long enough that all the digital stuff could do its work. Mm. I think what a lot of agencies are failing to explain to people at the moment is digital can be really effective, but it needs something to leverage off. Um, the way we always explain this to clients is being an average looking person in the party. <laughs> you, you will get ignored real quickly if you are an average looking person in the party that does not know anyone there. Yeah. Uh, so you can either be the prettiest person at the party, you can be the funniest person at the party, or you can have enough people at the party know you well enough that you won't get ignored. Yeah. So yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Really good analogy. Yeah. So those are your options as a business. Yeah. And the longer people have known you for, the better you're going to be known at the party. So how much traction has that approach? I mean, clearly there are some fantastic numbers in there, um, but uh, and presumably a happy client. Um, yes. How much traction has it got beyond marketing and into their organization? Uh, well, their board had to approve it. Their board obviously improved, approved further funding for that. Yeah. Um, but the, most of the conversations we're having, having now with a range of clients is around this full funnel piece. Yes. So rather than just focusing on the short term or this medium term, it's looking at how you can change the long term and then use the short and medium term to leverage that benefit. Yeah, great. And so and thereby building a proper bridge between Correct. The gut feel that you talked about right at the start and the actual what you want to try and do here, which is attribute uh yeah. sales effect. Yeah, and attribute value. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you can absolutely. attribute value to the brand, attribute value to the creative, attribute value all the way through. Yeah. And no longer have this conversation that's either brand or retail. It's an entire mixed message. Yes. Your budget needs to be combined to do all of this. But spending on brand does not mean you lose short-term benefits. Yes. Which is always the concern. People think, oh, if I spend all this money on brand now, I'm not going to see anything for a year. Ridiculous. Mm. Have, you, have you had much involvement with uh, directly with advertising agencies in, in this process as well? I mean, clearly... Iteration of creative um, has a has a bearing on, yeah. on messaging, on mix, on flighting, on everything else. Um, have they got much involved, or is it just a case of the agency changing? Oh, we, we used to call them clock numbers back in the day, but yeah. changing the clock number of an ad to, to to fit the model. We've worked with a couple of companies before where we've seen a clear change in their in their outcomes um, from certain channels with mm -hmm. with specific creatives. And so we're able to see that when they're running this specific creative over these three months, uh, certain channels were far more effective. Yeah, uh, Like the ROI was, ROI was better on these channels, everything else was performing well. Mm. So we were able to say, bring back that ad. So they brought back that specific creative, saw improved results again, and then their creative agency built something off the back of that ad to be a new creative as well, mm. which was able to see improved performance there. Mm. So, so that's really good. I mean, that's you know, that's obviously adding another dimension to things. Um, yeah. and uh, it's a massive part of what of what uh, of what a lot of these um, advertisers are doing and what the models need to show. Um, so, lots of success. That's great. Lots of opportunities. That's great. Um, what keeps you up at night? I mean, as a business owner and as a as someone who's obviously trying to grow a practice. Um, across Australia at least now, possibly yeah. possibly more in the future. What 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 are your biggest challenges? What keeps you up at night? I think our biggest challenge is probably people that work in data science. Um, 
I refuse to hire anyone that calls themselves a data scientist. It's <laughs> it's just the... apologies to all the data scientists <laughs> out there who might be who might have been sending resumes and stuff. It's, uh, maybe change change your resume title yeah. or something. Yeah, it's um, it's the biggest red flag. Why? We've Why? Seen. Why is um, that? There's been so many courses that have been data science courses, yeah. and it's been focused on coding and how to use R or Python or a specific program in R or Python to solve a problem. So the people can't generally solve the problem themselves. All they can do is write code. They can't talk to the stakeholders. They can't do a range of things. Yeah. Um, I'll hire someone that's a data analyst that can code over someone that's a data scientist that can do anything else. Right. Okay. So just call yourself a data analyst. Is, yeah. Is, hey, just show. <laughs> yeah. That'll help. First step. As well as showing all the skills and the yeah. necessary. For anyone applying, call yourself a data analyst. It's fine. <laughs> um, but there's so many AI solutions, ML solutions, the majority of them which aren't. Uh, I think there was some study recently that showed that 90% of solutions claiming to be AI and ML weren't AI or ML at all. Mm. Um, it's just a catchphrase that people are using at the moment. Uh, but there's all these solutions that are designed to push people out of the solution set giving them a result rather than giving them an understanding of what's happening. And I think that's the biggest issue in the industry at the moment. And for us, when we talk to people about analytics, they'll think it's reporting or they'll think it's coding or they'll think it's something else. They don't mm. think of it as working with them to help solve a problem. It's solving a problem for them and giving them the answer that then they can't use. Yeah. Whereas for us, we want to work with a client, help them solve the problem, then teach them how to do it themselves. A, we believe that a consultancy shouldn't be in a business for the rest of their life. Their job is to get in there, solve the problem, teach them how to do it, teach them how to fish, and get out. Yeah. Yeah, that's a philosophy that we share to a certain extent as well in, in consultancy terms. Um, you mentioned AI there. Um, I mean, yeah, it is a bit of a buzz term, and I think some sometimes it's genuine. It's like blockchain, isn't it? Yes. Some, sometimes it's genuine, and a lot of times it, it possibly isn't. Yeah. Um, but if you had to... I mean, thinking about the way in which you operate now and the way in which you could be operating in 10 years' time, what do you think the trends... It could be a tech trend, it could be a trend in modelling, it could be anything, but what are the trends that you see driving this part of the industry forward? Uh, cookie apocalypse is going to be one of the biggest ones. Yeah. Um, it's going to cause a huge shift in the industry away from one-to-one personalization, which I think was the worst thing the industry could have been doing in the first place. Um, but a shift away from that to this towards behavioral segmentation. And I think behavioral segmentation is the biggest opportunity and going to be the biggest next thing for companies. Mm. Um, at the moment, you have Google using their flocks, their federated learning of cohorts, yes. which is all behavioral segmentation. Um, I think what we're hoping to do with clients is move towards uh, helping them buy media on behavioral segments rather than buying their own demographics. So looking at how they're advertising on certain channels or it's with certain publishers, has driven a certain behavioral segment and then helping them buy media to those behavioral segments rather than to a demographic segment. The targeting for a demographic segment is so loose and so poorly attributed um, compared to a behavioral segment that you just try, it's a shotgun approach, which can waste a lot of money. People have been talking about behavioral segmentation for a long time, yeah. certainly in media planning terms. Uh, you're, you're, the implication is that there hasn't really been the, the real tools to... Correct. I mean, we're saying it, but not, not actually doing it. Well, yeah, as a media agency, what opportunity do you have to understand a behavioral segment, truly? A, from a client side, you have your website, you have your customer CRM database, you have all these things that can tell you how a customer is actually interacting, mm -hmm. and from a behavioral perspective, what their journey looks like. From an agency side, you're sitting in the middle where the publisher might tell you that 
these behavioral segments exist in people that watch their TV. So it might be people that watch rom-coms, not really a behavioral segment. Mm-hmm. Well, it is, it's just not a useful one. So I think agencies at the moment struggle to tie that value to an actual useful behavioral segment for a business. And I think the opportunity to go, again for a media planning tool would be to understand behavioral segments on the client side and then push that back up through media. Yeah. There is also the role of research in understanding behavioral segments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Care to offer an opinion about the value of research uh, versus uh, can it be combined with, with more a more analytical approach um, or do you think the days of traditional research in these kind of areas is, uh, do you think those days are numbered? I don't believe research should ever stand by itself. Um, research can tell you that these groups exist, but they won't tell you the value of those groups, which, again, I don't see the, the real value in for business. Um, they can tell you what people say the sentiment is towards something. They can't tell you how they're going to actually act towards that sentiment, uh, which I think is the issue. Mm-hmm. So if you can use research at a very high end of the funnel and then tie that through to actual behavior and say, okay, when we see these things change in the research and then this changes further on, uh, we know that's a value. But if you just have those metrics high up in the funnel without time to do anything else, you're just chasing chasing shadows. You're left with the 50% of knowing. Correct. What's that phrase? You know, yeah, you know, yeah. The, the, the I know 50% most, works. I don't know which 50%. The most hackneyed cliche in advertising, and I failed to remember it just then. Okay, <laughs> well, let's let's hope that we can, uh, you know, by the work that you're doing and a lot of other people are doing, that we can, um, uh, we can make it more than 50% at least of what we know. Yeah, so, I, there's a huge opportunity in media at the moment. Yeah. In agencies and companies and everything else. There's this massive opportunity to actually improve the way things are done, to move away from the short-termism we have with digital attribution, and to move towards a method that's more effective for customers, uh, more effective for the businesses, and probably more effective for the economy as a whole, because there's less money being wasted, it's being targeted better, and people are being given what they want when they want it, without some random company knowing their name, knowing when they they go to the bathroom, what kind of products they have, and who they're dating at the moment. Well... That's a great objective to have, and uh, I certainly wish you all the best in achieving it as, as you uh, <laughs> as you build your business. Um, Tasman, thanks again um, for coming on to uh, Managing Marketing. It's been uh, great talking to you. Thank you, time, Deb.